Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 17th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm joined here with Joe, and we will be discussing if our smartest members of society, or geniuses, are always the people that can think the fastest. For most of us, school marks the beginning of the great sorting process. Programs such as talented and gifted, standardized testing, specialized high schools, and eventually the Ivy League remain the great doorkeepers of our society, separating the math wizards and those who can solve differential equations in a few minutes from the students who may need some extra time writing that essay. We are led to believe that how quickly we process information remains the greatest marker of just how intelligent we are. With those who can process information quickly possessing a high IQ or innate ability that the rest of us are incapable of ever achieving. But what if that slow student in the back of the classroom has a lot more punch than meets the eye? Joining me on the discussion is Joe. Joe, can you tell us what it means to be a person that needs extra time or maybe goes through problems a bit slower? Hi, Aaron, and thank you for having me here today. Yeah, sure. I'm because I was one of those students that did struggle uh, in school to learn. But one thing that I learned while I was struggling was my ability to figure out solutions in addition to my struggles. Whereas often I noticed a lot of my fellow students that were able to really solve problems quickly and analyze things in a more expedient manner didn't necessarily get the richness or the depth of what they were actually thinking about. And so if they could solve a math problem really quickly, they didn't know why they were solving it. And these are concepts that are critical to not only understanding uh, the problem that they're solving, but to understanding reality. So I think that this is sometimes lost in when we do analysis to empirical and looking at uh, and analyzing society and analyzing ourselves and what we can and cannot contribute. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I did, I, I'm a history teacher by profession, but there are a few times that I had to teach math, <laughs> even right. though I'm very weak at it. And there's always this huge effort to show work. Like it's not always getting the right answer, but it's also showing work. And, and, and would you agree that maybe how somebody shows work actually can kind of clue us into their intelligence and not necessarily if they just arrived at the right answer? I think it clues us into the human person, the, the person themselves. It's, you know, they're, how they're arriving at their conclusions actually provides us with insights that we may not have thought about. And that's the point of struggling. And, you know, they, when you struggle and you have to think of things differently, a lot of people put a value on this idea of thinking different. But they don't necessarily want to go through the process of discovering what that actually means because they actually have to challenge themselves to get outside and think, how did this individual maybe solve this problem? And in that, you have new discoveries. And this is very, this is critical, and I find this to be really uh, interesting in the sense that how it's manifesting itself in the design thinking process. Because, hmm. you know, certain things that you just start to discover is it's not just thinking about it from your perspective. It's thinking about it from other individuals' perspective. And empathy is a critical part of that. So I think that that's another way of thinking about when we're learning from other individuals how they're approaching a problem. We start to learn more about ourselves in that process. Yeah, I love that, Joe. I think, I think that's a good way of looking at it. And it also allows us to question things that we think are right. Because when you have that person that's taking a very long time to figure something out, maybe they come up with the wrong answer, or maybe they have a lot of questions along the way. And that sort of challenges what we know to be true. Like the textbook might be telling me that this is the correct answer, but maybe there's a question along the way that makes me stop and pause and say, well, geez, you know, um, did the founding fathers really think that through when they were writing that bit in the Federalist Papers? You know, so I, I think that having that very slow process allows for discovery that, that the expedited version may not allow for. 
that's a really, really good point because it's not only did the founding fathers necessarily think something through, it's maybe you're starting to understand the contextual nature of why they thought what they thought. And I think that that's sometimes when we're talking to someone else that thinks differently, we can assess what the founding fathers came up with. What we can assess is how difficult it would have been to come up with a founding document given the circumstances that they were in. And what that does is that gives us contextual information that then we begin to be able to question ourselves what we're doing and why we're doing it. Yes, yeah, I mean, I, I think of like two minds at work here. So imagine you have a copy of the Constitution and you got two people reading it. One person is our typical whiz kid who reads the Constitution, memorizes all the amendments really quick and cite things for verbatim. And they go on to be an awesome lawyer because they have that working knowledge of the Constitution just at their disposal, like uh, what we call like the photo memory, or at least that's what we called it when I was a kid. And then you have the other person who doesn't retain as much, but every single thing they're analyzing, they're like, oh, the right to privacy. You know, what exactly does that mean? What, what does privacy entail? What is the boundary of that? And I, I, I think in that very long and methodical thinking of things, you actually develop a, a much richer image of, of what that, 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 that thing is that you're studying. And you're able to develop an argument that the other person just can't. And that's, you know, in a sense that because they just didn't look at it from that perspective. Yes. And, you know, that's where the richness and the depth of actually struggling comes in. Is that, you know, you st the, the idea of privacy. Well, why does privacy even exist? Now, let's just say you don't get it as quickly as the individual that can recite the entire constitution after looking at it three times. You know, that if you have a perspective where you're trying to figure out what each word means and why it exists, and that's your form of learning, that inevitably is going to give you a perspective that another attorney may not have. And with that, you can actually come up with new solutions and new approaches. And the most important thing is you can tell people something they didn't know. And in that, something, in that process is the discovery process that is actually why we ought to be looking at the value of struggle and not necessarily just valuing people for how quickly they can memorize or do something. You know, I, I thinking of this, and I, I like that we just jumped on this idea of attorneys because attorneys are confrontational type uh, people. And I like this idea that everything you're learning needs to be confrontational. So I think the person that kind of memorizes things quickly, they're not putting that much of a fight up. They're like, oh, well, if that's what the book says, then that's what the book says. And they're, 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 it's not, they're not really arguing it in their mind. They're just kind of absorbing it. They're like, this was written in a textbook. Therefore, it is the gospel and therefore it's the truth. And I'm just going to memorize it. But the person that's slowly learning it is having internal arguments in their mind of like, geez, Louise, is that really true? Let me, let me think about this. And, and, and this applies, you know, outside the realm of the constitution. It could be something in biology, like, gee, we really evolved that way or, or Darwinian principles really work that way. And I, I think that that, that that conflict that you have with what you're learning leads to that richness in, in, its, uh, in, in how you use that knowledge. I, I think that's so true. And I think we live in a society that doesn't encourage us to ask why. Yes, yes. And I think that that's a critical point to, to really stress here is that since we live in a society that rewards this mechanistic type of learning where we're looking at expedience and what we can do and how quickly we can do and do something and how much we can do, then you start to stop to ask the questions as to why you're even doing it in the first place. And then once you're, you know, once you lose that, I think that that's something that you lose a not only perspective, but you also lose empathy hmm. in this process, you know, an empathy of understanding as to why something occurs and then what other people are actually going through. Yes. I, I think that the why, I, you know, I remember when I was in elementary school, do you remember the five W's? Who, what, I don't where? Know. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, who, so what, I, what, where, what? Yeah, yes. I'm yes. sorry. I do. I do. <laughs> so I think of the, the five W's 
and the why has completely disappeared from all of learning. I, I feel like it's especially, especially you know, you can make the argument there's a bit of a why in, in the in the English language arts class, and maybe and and probably in the history class, but especially in like the sciences, like the why. I feel gets like, we're all about the technique, especially like when I've taught math, oh, Pythagorean theorem, a quadratic formula, technique, 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 memorize this, flashcards. And there is a, there is a type of mind that adapts to that kind of, of, of learning. Like my girlfriend loves that kind of stuff. She's all about that technique, all about, oh, here's a much easier way to do that. But, and there's nothing wrong. Like I'm not trying to say that that mind is, is, in, inferior or, you know, it's just different. And, and that's useful sure. too. Like you need, sometimes you need people to do things really quickly and that's totally fine. But I think that the why taps into a whole nother dimension of potential, because when you say why you might actually, you might, uh, you might actually upend the whole system. Like you might ask enough right. why questions that you're, you're like, Oh geez, the how doesn't matter anymore. This is not useful at all. And that's a great point because sometimes what we do is we get into this and I see this a lot with where um, the people that I work with that they get domain specific knowledge and they do things very, very efficiently and intelligently, but they don't ask why. So when they're designing something new and coming up with a, a new product or building a new ship in this case, they have a lot of mistakes that they make in this process because they're going off of existing knowledge that they already have and they never don't necessarily ask what is changing with this new design model that they're building and what happens is the why gets lost in that process that hmm. you're no longer asking as to well why did we use this on the first ship and why are we using this on the second ship and I, these, this type of example is just really where we're headed with this high idea of analytics, we tend to just abide or uh, adhere to the idea of what already exists. What information is already out there? How do I analyze it? Here's your answer. And we don't necessarily think about why that, that analysis was even done in the first place. And then what's the contextual uh, understanding that, that comes along with the answer. Yes, Joe. Yes. And I want to get back because I, I know that you work with uh, designers and engineers and such. Do you think that a lot of these people, and this is something that I found about them, and, and this is not a slight in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the least sense, is that their mind goes straight for the template. Like when they're designing something, they're like, okay, how is this thing that I'm designing like something else that has been designed? And what's the appropriate template to use? Whereas when they're tasked with having to design something for the first time or something completely new, that's where they kind of freeze because there isn't a procedure and there isn't a template of design that they can fall back on. Am I getting that right? I think you're right. That's spot on. And because what you're getting to is the lack of imagination at that point is that people st get stuck in the ways of looking the way they assess reality. And what happens is that they can't even imagine something differently. And they, you can't even necessarily imagine what other people actually need. So that's where I was you know, kind of going with a little bit earlier is the idea of the design thinking process sometimes suffers when you have this way of this template on how you do something and it, you are able to do something really efficiently, you start to think you, that all, that's all that there is to reality. And what happens is what suffers in that process is even why you were doing it in the first place. Yes, yes. Like you, it, it kind of is like you have to sort of go through a mini existential crisis of like, yes. I, you know, I've been designing this. I've been designing skyscrapers my whole life and then it's been wonderful. Oh, wait, we don't need skyscrapers anymore. We're designing log cabins now. And you have to sort of evaluate well, okay, why do we need this now? How is it going to be useful? How are these log cabins going to be different than the log cabins of 100 years ago? And you, you really have to be creative and you have to really think about what the intended purpose is. And I think with the template system, the template is just instructions. It's not necessarily a guide to life. It's not a guide as to how, how this new innovation and how this new invention is going to be a, a, applicable to people. And, and that's where you kind of need to have a, a, a bit more freedom in your thinking. 
No, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and then this is actually speaks to the, the point of intelligence, right? So then what is intelligence? Is it the ability to do something that's already been done really fast? Or is it the ability to come up with something new? Yes, yes. And I think, you know, and that's where, that's where sometimes the why is, you know, it, we've gotten away from actually, and we look for things to get done quickly. I mean, that's what our society values. But ultimately, the, the why question starts to drift to the side. And at that point, uh, you know, you lose a lot in the process. Yes, absolutely. You know, Joe, that, that, that's so true. Like we're all about the efficiency and the why is drifting away. Now I've worked a number of jobs from teaching to I've worked in fast food, especially in fast food. They want you to be quick. Right, <laughs> they don't right. care. Oh, no, absolutely. They don't, they don't want you to think about like, why am I making this hamburger right now? Like they just want you to you shovel out the food quickly. But I think that as our society gets off. Like, I think that that way of thinking comes from the assembly line method under Henry Ford of like, let's Absolutely. get the, let's get these cars out real quick, fast guys. Don't, don't, don't worry about the parts. Don't worry about the tire, get it on. And just let's crank these cars out. I think we are entering as we enter a more intellectual information oriented age. I think the why is going to be of paramount importance. And we may, we may have been okay in the 20th century, just using our assembly aligned manufacturing kind of model of education and thinking. But now when all our basic needs have been met, everything we need to, we do now is not about food. It's not about bare shelter. It's about why are we doing this? Why is this going to uplift humanity? Absolutely. And it's becoming a knowledge-based economy and, you know, where you're starting to value people that can, not just do the one specialized task, but people that figure out why they're doing the task in the first place. And so I think that in, in you're seeing this even in, manifest itself with automation. Tasks that are being automated are usually highly specialized and, and this kind of assembly line approach to even thinking. So that, you know, again, I can do this and I can do it quickly and it's efficient and it fits into a system. Yes. But if you don't understand why the system is the way, it, the reason the system exists in the first place, I mean, that's essentially where the, the I find that the generalists are going to be much more marketable than say someone that is uh, just a specialist in general. And I mean, let's face it, often when you become very good at something like, uh, you know, and we're seeing in the legal profession is even their being, their part of their, some of their jobs are being automated. That, you know, again, these are specialist types of positions. And if you're not understanding as to why, you're probably going to have a more difficult time to finding a job in today's day and age, I think. I think that the people who can follow the prescription. Like the, I think of the person like coding or whatever that's following the prescriptive model. They're, they're kind of more in high demand right now. Like we, we, we definitely have a lot of these tech jobs and we have a lot of these prescription based jobs that are in, in need. But as you're saying, Joe, as AI and as automation increases, I, I think we're going to need less of that. And, and we're going to start turning more to the philosophy types that are, are really thinking about, well, what is it that we should be doing with our time? And get, getting to the Silicon Valley folk, and I know that they're under attack, and it, it's, a, it's a dual sword because if it wasn't for the Silicon Valley folk, we wouldn't be here on Zoom right now. So I have to give, them a, giant, I have to give them a giant shout out for making all of that possible. But at the same time, they're cranking out a lot of stuff. And with some inventions, I don't think that they're really thinking the why through very thoroughly. Like I, 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 I'm, I'm miss, I can't think of one offhand, but I think there's a lot of apps, like there's a lot of apps being pumped out. Some of them good, some of them great, some of them useful, but then there's a lot of that, that maybe they're very nicely designed apps, like from an aesthetic point of view, they're, they're beautifully designed. But then I'm like, well, why would I ever need to use this? Right. Right. And, 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 that, and I think that is starting to be, I, I do think Silicon Valley will come around at some point where they start to value various forms of intelligence. And I think design thinking actually does start to incorporate that a little bit more. You see it with uh, Stanford's D school 
uh, where they start to look at people from a, a wide range of uh, backgrounds. Uh, there's a, a symbolic systems program out at Stanford where they're starting to value philosophers and engineers. And you're starting to see where they're seeing the connections between multidisciplinary in a, people with a, a wide variety of disciplines. And I think philosophers are actually playing a much more important role going forward in how these uh, engineers are actually thinking, where th it's a return to actually true liberal arts types of education as well. I, I hate to use he's such a cliche example, but with Steve Jobs, it's like I think it was said that he never wrote like a line of code or, or anything, but he had this immense philosophy background. Like he actually lived in a commune, he actually studied Buddhism, and I, I think that's like an example of somebody who probably may not be that good at following templates. He, he was, he was probably, I think he got, he was fired or he quit. He had a, he had a temperament, like he had a, what we call the artistic temperament where he wasn't going to be told what to do. But I think the fact that he wasn't willing to resign himself to a template and he had that philosophical background is what allowed him to say, uh, yeah, screw making another desktop operating system. Let, let's make something that fits in your hand and can check your email or something. Because I, I, think, I think that if, if, you didn't, if he didn't have that ability to look past the template, he would have just made Windows or made the Apple's operating system just slightly better than the previous model. Yeah, and I think that that's a, you know, that's a great example because if you look at the two individuals that were really early on in the Silicon Valley, if you say Bill Gates and and uh, Steve Jobs. And you take these two, one was a genius, went through school very quickly, went to Harvard, you know, was really part of that expediency that we were talking about with what we truly value is just, just he was a genius at every, uh, you know, and, in every sense of the word, meaning Bill Gates. However, it's interesting how this other individual who also dropped out of college was, you know, a bright individual. Yeah. But he thought of the world differently, you know, and on a, and he thought about it on a, in a artistic scale, but it, but also in a philosophical way. And ultimately you had, if we, if we just put two people next to each other, everybody would have said, Bill Gates is a genius. He's the one you got to listen to. And that's, that's what you have to do. Right? He's, he's, he's the guy, right? He also you know? had perfect SAT scores, right? Exactly. So he, he, I, he, he's exactly what you would say is like, this is the person. And for many things, I actually agree with him on most things. And he is a brilliant individual. However, there's a different way of thinking about things. And that's what Steve Jobs had brought. And so even the idea, and I'll give you an example of how, all right, he's not as bright as Bill Gates. How did he even get started? You know, I think he, he um, I forget who he called, uh, the head of Hewlett Packard on the okay. phone when he was 12. And he got involved into a program at Hewlett Packard. And he said, you know, I, I would like some parts to build a calculator. And he got into a very competitive program to where he met a variety of other individuals that helped catapult his career and in, in, uh, even the, the idea of working uh, at, a, I believe, Atari afterwards. But anyway, what my point of this is he had to figure out a different way to do something and to get into that group yeah. and to get noticed. And that's different than, say, Bill Gates, who just went there. And in, in, the, in that, it's a creative way of thinking. That's what I was trying to get at, is that he had to think creatively about how to even get to the position where he could start a company that was a computer company, uh, I like, like Bill Gates. I like that. And the other thing is, is that because even though Bill Gates dropped out of college, he still had some years of Ivy League under his belt. Sure. So people took him a little bit more seriously. I think his mom had some business connections as well. So I, I think that the true innovator not only is coming up with a revolutionary product, 
but they have to be the ones that find a creative way to get an end into the castle of, of innovation in the first place. Like they, they have to like, they're like a knight being like, how am I getting over this Ivy league moat of ideas that, that, you know, me and my public college, you know, my two years of community college need to somehow transcend. And right off the bat, that takes a whole level of creativity as well, because you have to somehow market yourself because you don't have that like, Ivy League piece of paper that tells you your ideas are just as great. That's right. I mean, it, you know, it's in that's where it, it becomes something you become something different. You have all these guys that went to uh, and girls that went to Ivy League schools and you know that you're not them. Yeah. So how are you going to compete with them? Sure. And that's what you have to ask yourself. And once you're able to answer that question, then that is part of the process of like saying, I have to think about things differently. And I've had to struggle my whole way through my entire life, you know, my career, but I need to figure out how do I compete with, you know, with, with um, the Ivy league or, or even, you know, the elite schools that, that graduate, you know, engineers that graduate every year. And, you know, in that process, you discover something. You know, you discover something about yourself and you also discover something about what makes them tick and what makes you tick. Mm. And that allows you to figure out a way to be successful. I love that, Joe. I think, I think that's, um, that's very inspiring about um, figuring out what, you, what, what tick and, and what motivates you. I want to turn the discussion a little bit and sort of think about this idea about why it is that we need to compete with the quick-minded Ivy League person. Like we, it's always, we, we kind of like automatically frame this discussion as in like, oh, they're the super, like I think of a Mount Olympus. This is, this is what I'm thinking here. Mount Olympus, if you get perfect SAT scores and you're super fast at solving math equations, you're deemed a God and you get to go to Mount Olympus and everyone realizes that you're a God. And there is like a Hercules that comes along that's a demigod and then he can sort of build his way up into Mount Olympus. But I don't, I see it as a collaboration of like, hey, you're really good at doing things quickly. We got the right job for you. Hey, you have a more slower mind, but we also have but a very wise mind. We have a job for you as well. So I don't, I, I, I kind of want to see our society move away from like, it's the quick minded versus the slow minded in this perpetual war and sort of see it as a collaborative effort. Absolutely. I mean, it has to be something where you're finding the value in what everyone brings to the table. And I think that that is innovative in it of itself. Sometimes you're dealt, you're put into a situation where you're in very difficult circumstances. And it takes a certain amount of lateral thinking that actually in order to make something to get out of that situation and make the most of the situation that you're actually in. So I don't look at it as an either or kind of situation. I look at it as a both and. And so then what is it that the person that has to struggle and learn bring to the person that actually has that Ivy League school education and is able to do something uh, very quickly. And, 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 and it could be as simple as understanding what makes them tick and why they need to do what they do. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, that part of it, sometimes we fail to ask, as we talked about a lot, a little bit already, we fail to ask that question. You know, sometimes in, I've been exploring a little bit was a, a philosophy of life. You know, you're asking the question why I'm doing something. And when you're really, really good at something, sometimes you don't even ask why you just do it. Right. So yes. I think that that's something in that, that it, it it, we, we need to find the value in what everybody brings to the table. I think it, that's, that's, that's the critical point when it comes to the idea of, you know, just not valuing somebody that does something very quickly. I think it's also valuing somebody that has to struggle. I, I think of like movie theaters as being a good example. So I think of the old time movie theaters and I, I remember being a little kid and I was only like four feet tall and you prayed 
that a tall person wouldn't sit in front of you because you, you were like, oh man, we're all on the same plane. And if someone, if someone tall sits in front of me, then I can't see the film. But somewhere along the line, some engineer or some architect said, wait a minute, what if we design movie theaters in a graduated sense where like as you go back rows, it starts to rise and then everyone can kind of see the screen. And I, I think like if, if, if all of these engineers just kept on following the template of like, okay, we put one seat in front of the other and well, if a tall person sits in front of you and you can't see, tough luck. But then somebody else, one of these people said, hey, well, why, why don't we just raise the, the row behind you uh, a few feet so that everyone can kind of see the screen regardless of who's sitting in front of you. And that's an example of a philosopher working with an engineer and sort of breaking the template, if you would. Absolutely, breaking the template and that's through empathy you know you do these these you figure out the problem and you understand what the struggle is for the other individual and yes you have to bring it now you need the person that has developed the template to and design or to not design but to build the structure that you know is then elevated but it starts with an idea of even thinking as to well what can be different and then why is it this way and I think that that's something that's often overlooked with a lot of engineering endeavors. I think it's, you know, that was a perfect, that was a beautifully put example, but I think it as a way of, you know, it happens on very complex and expensive projects as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think there's also, I, I think creativity sort of is bred out of necessity and if you've been an individual that's been denied something or you, because we, we, when we look at some innovators, they tend to be, I think I had this discussion with someone else, they tend to be outliers or outcasts or people that have kind of not found success in the normal system that was. So they, they've been unable to find a venue for their talents and that, that necessity kind of breeds creativity, you know? And I, I think of, if you look at uh, New York City, for example, in the early 1900s, for example, many uh, department stores would not hire Jews and Irish. So if you were mm -hmm. Jewish or Irish in the early 1900s living in New York, you could not get a job in a conventional uh, department store. So what did that lead? It led to all of these like street markets and it led to all of these uh, people with carts and, and selling and haggling and, and going over the food. So if it wasn't for that um, denial of, of like, welcome here, come, come work in our department and be a part of the template, then none of that innovation would have come about. Yeah, and that, that's, that's a really, and sometimes, you know, there's a certain, I've always believed that there's a certain level of that adversity that actually helps you understand the world a lot better not too much i i don't want to overstate <laughs> that a lot of yeah. people often say well you know just uh yeah that's an obstacle to overcome it and you'll be better for it it's really not that simple i mean the obstacle could be insurmountable sometimes however that being said i believe personally that a lot of the more adversity than the more things that you can overcome that you're going to have a different way of looking at the world and I think that that is really a form of intelligence that we sure. overlook and, and we don't necessarily value. We often will say to somebody that maybe isn't as accomplished, we'll look at them as being less wise. Yeah. And yes. I think that that's a really important point. It, they're not less wise. Their experiences are actually, I found the most wisdom to be in everyday life. So, you know, for me, I, I don't necessarily look at what the individual has necessarily accomplished. I look at how they approach things in general. I was having a conversation with another gentleman uh, a few days ago, and he used the phrase, money makes everything look sexy. And it, it's like if your intelligence isn't producing capital or it's not producing money, our society tends not to value it. And we have a lot of wise philosophers that can, like there, there might be, for example, a very wise social worker or a wise therapist that could save your marriage, right? Like they, they have the wisdom to save your marriage or save or salvage the relationship between you and your father. But because that job is not high paying or because it's not lucrative, we place less emphasis and less value on that job. And I, I, think, I think our society 
is paying for it because we have perhaps some very wise and remarkable people who would make excellent social workers or excellent therapists, but because we've put such a low pr financial premium, we've made that kind of wisdom like unsexy, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, and this is why it's important not to put value on one single thing, whether it be solving an equation very quickly or, you know, uh, you know, somebody that, that may struggle. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's your, you're putting the value on what is meaningful, right? Yeah. And people's experiences are meaningful. Absolutely. And so then you're starting to be able to discern, okay, then what's really important. And this happens in the same, this happens in the business world, right? I mean, it, it, you're right. We apply money and we look at everything to, in, in financial terms, but that doesn't necessarily help you even create anything that's valuable or even meaningful. Yes. And I think that that's what gets lost in the process. That's the, that's wisdom sure. that essentially is available in everyday life that gets lost in this more of a um, mechanistic type of society. I agree. Last thing I want to touch upon is moving forward. Like, what are we going to do? So, you know, are we going to just abolish the SATs? Because there's going to be other people that are going to jump into the argument and say, well, we need some type of standard to judge people. We can't just let anyone say that they're an expert. And there's some truth. Like there, there's some truth in that. Like I, I, I hear what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how it is as a society that we can look at a person and be like, whoa, you got deep philosophical knowledge there, or you've got some deep philosophical wisdom because I, there is a fear in me that that could become very subjective because I, I see that opening the door to nepotism. I see it opening the door with, well, I like the way my friend thinks over here. You know, we went to school together and he's pretty cool. He's, he's a philosopher. So I'm wondering how, how our society would have metrics to kind of measure these things because it could lead to a system where people are just favoring the ideas and the wisdom of the people they like. Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's a fascinating question is that, yeah, how do you really evaluate that and put a value on, you know, on a, from, on a societal level? Uh, and that becomes very difficult. I, and the only way I look at this is that you have to incorporate philosophy and logic more into primary schooling. Yeah. And then I think there's different ways that you can assess that that would maybe give you a better indication as to, you know, how someone thinks. Yes. versus how quickly they think. And I think that that's maybe a way of looking at it because I really don't see that we're not, again, we're not, we're being incentivized not to ask why. Yeah. And, I, and I think that you have to start to build a system that evaluates a person's curiosity and their ability to come up with solutions irregardless of how quickly they do it. So I think that there are, and you can develop, you know, look, you can l develop even metrics that assess that to a certain degree. You know, um, you know what's yeah. funny? I love what you just said about, we need to develop metrics as to someone's curiosity. And it's like, what if we had a test where instead of writing down the right answer, you just wrote down a bunch of questions you know, like right, we like, right. like, like, like wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be That's like the, great. wouldn't that be like the best test ever? It's like I'm gonna present something, a, a concept to you, or some idea, and I want you to write down ten questions. And like, whoever comes up with the best questions has like the best kind of philosophical mindset. I mean, that that could be a metric right there. Absolutely. I mean, because sometimes the value is in the questions. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, it's not in the answers, and I think that our ability to ask questions. If I'm working with someone, uh, uh, you know, and I'm training them, I know what they're seeing by the questions they ask and what I'm not communicating as well. Sure. So I think the ability to ask questions is really critical because it helps me not only, it helps us not only assess, you know, how the students are doing and what, how they're thinking, but it also helps us assess ourselves. And I think that that's a really important part of learning that we overlook. And I, I, it, it, that's a brilliant idea as far as really seeing, okay, what are the list of questions that you have out of this essay? 
you know, yeah. and, and, and a way of valuing that. And you would look probably down at some of them and be like, well, I don't get it. And if they explained as to why they were thinking that, it would open a, up a new way of uh, thinking for yourself as well. I mean, you know, the, you'd start to arrive at seeing how people arrive at their conclusions. Yes. And that's, that's, that's an incredible, that's a very valuable insight. Yeah. I, I, I think that, um, you know, if we, if we start evaluating the questions being asked rather than the answers being provided, then our, our society is going to start rewarding and start looking. And then it's not to negate the people that are getting the right answers really quickly. Like those people we still love and they're still valuable. It's just that we need to give due to the people that are on the opposite end of that and the ones generating the questions. I think both, both go hand in hand. And I think when we live in a world where both sit at the uh, at King Arthur's round table and, and solve the world's problems, then we can start making some magic. I agree. And I think it gives us, you know, again, it's a more inclusive way and more holistic way of assessing what we're doing. You know, it's not necessarily just saying, okay, what can you do? How quickly you can do it? And then we're done with everybody else. I think that it ultimately, you know, it provides us with a deeper insights into how everybody fits into this kind of uh, approach, how evaluating everybody's skills uh, efficiently, you know, in, in a more, in, in a more humane way, I think yes. as well. So I, I, you know, I think that that's really something. I think that by teaching logic and philosophy in primary school edu education, I think is kind of critical because many of the things that I remember when I was growing up is I went from class to class, you know, how much I can memorize in history, what can, how quickly can I solve this math problem? That was just, and that's essentially it. I mean, you know, you're, you're just going from class to class very quickly and seeing how much you can absorb and you'll learn how to write in that process. And yes, there's some, there's absolutely, you don't want to, you know, lose the idea of, uh, of, uh, some of the value that's gained from our current way of learning. But at the same time, I was never taught logic and how mm. to really think on a more um, broad scale where I could say, okay, well, again, why am I doing this, you know, to begin with? And I, I, I don't know, I, I'm not, I don't, not as familiar with uh, the schooling system as you are, uh, but I don't believe that's being taught. Uh, right it's not. Now. No, you, you've so. got that spot on. It's not being taught and it's not being valued for that matter. So, yes. uh, you know, like one, one positive thing about my grad school program is that there's no tests. Everything is a paper. And that that kind of services folk like me who are not going to do well in a time setting where, you know, I'm looking at some multiple choice questions and I just got to regurgitate information. But I, I think that our school system needs to kind of evolve and adapt and realize like, hey, if you are a slower philosophical thinker, then perhaps writing a long essay on how to solve this problem is going to be a, a more accurate mirror into your intelligence than this standardized test. And that's a great way because, you know, we all, we're starting to understanding the, the power of framing and with questions and how people react in general so that when you have a multiple choice test, you know, somebody can arrive at a conclusion and I bet you in a certain way, you can almost justify the answer in certain cases that the answer is say, you know, it's, uh, you know, the choice of something being, uh, <laughs> you know, A, B or C or D or, and, and unless it's like two, four or six, like it's a number, it's a mathematical equation. But let's just say the answers, you know, are, are um, you know, one sentence answers that you can start to interpret something and justify what you, inter how you interpreted something. And I think that that's something that would be really valuable if a teacher came up and said, why did you, you know, answer the, this this way? And some of the students were, were able to start to articulate exactly what they meant. And it may be logical. But again, yeah. I think this all comes back to how do we assess someone's logic, you know, yes. their ability. And, and, I, and I, that's not clear to me. You know, I, I really thought about that. You know, it's, it's a lot of introspection in general, but uh, for on a personal level. But how do you assess that on a more societal level is a much more difficult question.
you know, it's funny that reminds me of, of when I was, I was taking a class for the GRE and I consider myself pretty solid in the verbal section. Like I, I can do pretty well there, but I got to this one question and I was like, no, I think that the author meant this. I think this was the theme. And I pointed out several counter examples and we went back and forth, but ultimately the instructor was like, well, the answer is E. Like, I hear what you're saying, the answer is E. And I felt just so crushed in that moment because I came up with a bunch of like counter examples. I, 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 and, and like, he actually acknowledged like, yeah, I see, I see where you're coming from. But the fact that we just had to resign ourselves to like, well, the book says the answer is E and that's just it. We have to accept that and move on. I think that's the most soul crushing thing about education right now. I, I believe, I agree. I couldn't agree more. And actually there was, a, you know, an operations management class that I was taking in college um, where we were taking those types of tests, you know, where, you know, it was something almost, it was an equation boiled down to. And there, I, I was fortunate enough to come along, uh, come across a professor that would give us multiple choice tests and what happened was uh, I told them that, hey, look, this is not how I, I, I don't do well in these types of exams. So I asked him if I could write a paper instead. And he was kind enough to say, okay, you know, if you, he didn't, he didn't necessarily allow me not to take the test. I did take the test, but I could supplement my grade by writing a paper. Wow. And I think that that's an example of saying, all right, I understand and I have to have standards. Sure. For everyone, right? You know, everybody's got to take the test. I'm not going to switch the entire class because you want to write a paper. However, I will afford everyone the opportunity, you know, to express as to how they think about this topic a little bit differently. And, you know, those are and some of my best professors in college would often be the teacher that would teach um, uh, calculus and he would allow to you and, and for specifically for economics, but he allowed you either take the calculus exam or write a paper for the final. <laughs> and you know, that, that was a, it's a wonderful way of teaching because it's a variety of options and you're playing to the strengths of the students and you're actually testing what they know about the topic and how, you know, it, it, you know, and how they, they're, you're finding out what they can do well. And, and I think that's a much more humane way as opposed to saying, here's this test. If you don't pass it from, you know, it, it, with uh, the written test in 45 minutes, then you're out of luck. I, I think it really gave everybody and a paper many times is a lot harder because you have to go through, you have to yeah. do the research, you have to figure out a whole set of things. Whereas if I were somebody that took a test really quickly and, and, and I got it really fast, I wouldn't study those things. You know, I wouldn't, and I think that that's part of the, the depth and the richness that you kind of get from having to think differently. I think that's a perfect example. You know, I have to go out and research this and figure out why all this, you know, uh, all this economic theory and why people arrived at these theories. And here are some of the analytics behind it because I can't take this really, this test really fast. <laughs> Because if yeah. I could, I would only take this 45-minute test, yeah. and then I would have a good time on Friday night. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I think And that, I like that yeah. because it, it's, it, you know, first off, uh, God bless that professor for being so accommodating. Oh, he, is like, he, he, yeah. is, he is like uh, he is like 20 years down the line of what educators should be. Um, and the other thing I want to point out is it just also shows the ardor of the philosophical mind because – yeah, everyone wishes that they had the the 45 minute brain that was like, like done. Now I get to party with my friends on Friday night. But then if you've got the philosophical mind, it, it's, it, it's an arduous path because now you're questioning things, asking things, building up research. Well, wait a minute, this research contradicts that research. And now I have to be the guy in the middle who figures out what's right and what's wrong and where the flaws are. So I, I, I would say that if anything, again, I don't want to make it value judgment, but I, I would say that we have quite an arduous road that we walk every day that gets very little acknowledgement. So I think it's the process of actually overcoming and that's the beauty of the, that, uh, you know, in perseverance. And, you know, sometimes that, that we, we don't appreciate it while we're, while we're going through, you know, some of the difficulties that we were talking about. 
And, you know, that is a form of education in and of itself. You know, so yes, again, you know, we have to struggle a little bit more when, you know, we have to take this extra time. We can't go out on the Friday night with our friends. We can't do things that other people can do. Um, But in that process, we have to find value. And I think that that's really something that I have found along the lines for for myself personally, that you don't necessarily, you're frustrated with the process while you're going through it. But once you arrive at the conclusions that you do, you're able to look at the world a lot differently when you walk into a meeting on Monday morning or Tuesday morning and where you're taking a test or conversing with a professor. Yes. And and this is why sometimes I think it's really critical in another philosophical way of looking at life is enjoying the journey. You know what, Joe? I, I think a good way to end this off is this. I see myself as like the dumbest person in the moment. But if you give me the weekend to research that thing that we're arguing about, I will walk in Monday morning the smartest person. And I think absolutely that's what I I, I think that's like the goal of all of this is giving people the time that need it to research it. And and believe me, if society gives us that allocation, it won't be sorry. we, we, We will have much more treasures than we could have possibly imagined. Yeah, and, and there's, you know, and there's some signs uh, that even, you know, um, corporate America to a certain degree is starting to value these things to, to where they give people. Now, the problem is they don't have a way of giving all of the people that work there a different way of thinking, but, you know, or uh, the time to think uh, freely. But I know that there are, you know, a lot of companies where they'll give somebody a day off a week just to think and come up with ideas and, nice. uh, and, you know, there, and I, and this is, there are a lot of different companies that, that approach um, uh, innovation this way where you start to just say, okay, here's your day, come up with an idea. Right. And then you're coming up, you're flushing it out. But again, it, it, it's something that you're coming in on Monday and have having thought about something differently because you had the extra time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's an example is that it's also, that's as true. You don't even need the extra day in there. It could be somebody that has to work all weekend to get that extra, um, that, that extra bit of understanding that they would otherwise have not had. Absolutely, Joe. Uh, I think that's a great way to leave off our conversation. I, I can't thank you enough for being here with me today. Thank you, Aaron. That concludes the 17th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.